Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Gareth Jones uh, from the Department of Geography, uh, and I'm chair of uh, this evening's uh, public lecture. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Ananya Roy to the LSE. I thought I'd do the dry bit first. Um, Ananya is professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of California at Berkeley where she's also Education Director of the Bloom Center for Developing Economies and Co-Director of the Global Metropolitan Studies Center. It is, of course, uh, Ananya's research and writing uh, that marks her out as one of the leading thinkers on cities today. She is author of uh, City Requiem, Calcutta, Gender, and the Politics of Poverty, uh, published with Minnesota in 2003. Co-editor of Urban Informality, Transnational Perspectives from the Middle East, South Asia, and Latin America. And author of Poverty Capital, Microfinance, and the Making of Development, which was published last year, at least in the UK, uh, by Routledge. Uh, and copies uh, are available uh, in the lobby uh, on your way uh, down. Uh, and Anya will also be around uh, to sign uh, copies if, uh, uh, if they so wish at the end of the lecture. Her latest book, uh, so watch out, is uh, co-edited with Iwa Ong, uh, is entitled Worlding Cities, Asian Experiments and the Art of Being Global uh, with Blackwell and is due out very shortly. On a less formal note, it's a personal pleasure to have Ananya with us this evening. Um, we first met an awful long time ago, I think, um, post-conference party in Dubai. Um, yes, another person was there as well, maybe is aware of what I'm about to say. Um, the party involved traditional and authentic local pursuits, uh, such as hooker pipe smoking, belly dancing, camel rides, and sand dune surfing. At my age, then, it was a great relief to sit in a Bedouin tent and chat with Ananya uh, for much of the evening. It was a great and brief opportunity uh, to put a face to a name and follow up on the many laudatory comments that students here at the LSE with their origins at Berkeley had made about her. The urban programs at LSE have benefited enormously from the excellent students that come to us from Berkeley. In no small part, that stream of talent is due to Ananya. From Dubai, I rushed back to the UK to buy City Requiem and have been a fan of her work, especially the combined interrogation of theory and policy, her commitment to politics in a great many forms, and the eloquence of her writing ever since. It's fantastic then, having tried for such a long time to get Ananya's speed of light schedule to combine with a chance to speak at the LSE, that I welcome her here tonight, her talk this evening, Cities at the Speed of Light, Asian Experiments of the Urban Century. Welcome, Ananya. Well, let's see if I can actually get this to work at a slow speed. 
Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Gareth, for that very generous introduction and for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here among friends and colleagues and former students. My talk, as you can tell, is titled Cities at the Speed of Light, Asian Experiments of the Urban Century. And I will indeed, to some extent, preview the work that Iwa Ong and I have been doing for the book, Worlding Cities, Asian Experiments and the Art of Being Global. My title, Cities at the Speed of Light, suggests in somewhat obvious fashion that we need to think about cities as formations not only of space, but also of time, as experiments of space and time. Today, in particular, I want to draw attention to an urban condition where the making of urban futures is also the making of Asian futures. And so let me start with this theme of futures. In a photographic exhibit titled Standing Still, Malaysian artist Simran Gill presents images of what she describes as ambitious development projects abandoned before completion. They capture what Gill calls a place in time, a place in time where one might say the past lies in ruins, unkempt and untended, and the future also somehow has been abandoned and has started to crumble. No way forward, no way back. Taken between 2000 and 2003 in Malaysia, Simran Gill's photographs interrupt the fantastic teleology that at that time was the East Asian miracle. It is the future abandoned before it could be fully anticipated or lived. It is dialectics at a standstill. I borrowed this phrase, of course, from Walter Benjamin. In his 1935 expose on Paris, Benjamin writes, ambiguity is the appearance of dialectic in images, the law of dialectics at a standstill. This standstill is utopia and the dialectical image, therefore dream image. There are many such sites of standstill. The monuments of the bourgeoisie in ruins even before they have crumbled. In Kolkata, for example, a city that I've studied for well over a decade now, peri-urban condominium projects mark the aspirations of the Asian world-class city. Ambitious public-private partnerships, these townships, are meant to serve the global Indian. But there are many, including the city's showpiece new town, that are ghost towns. Frozen in a state of incompletion, they lack urban services, Residents survive in the ways in which slum dwellers and squatters do, in poor informal settlements, by buying water from vendors, using diesel generators, and making do with unpaved streets. Many are quickly moving out, abandoning the future. Or in Dubai, in the shadows of the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, is International City, a 2,000-acre development Reports describe it as a place where traffic circles are now overgrown, apartment buildings are almost completely vacant, rows of storefronts are empty. There are piles of construction debris, flooded parking lots, streetlights that do not work. Or in China, extravagant new cities, say those built in the north, like Ordos, boast broad boulevards, towers of office buildings, luxury housing, but these so-called tomorrow lands are also ghost towns, bold speculations that have not yielded residents. There's no traffic, weeds in the luxury villa developments, 
office towers that are eerily vacant. This is, to borrow a phrase from Abdul Malik Simone, the ghostly order in cities. It is where the circulation of capital slows, falters, trips over itself. It is where the dream image becomes dialectical image. Ruins of a world-class future, these ghost towns give me great hope. They are disruptions in the master narrative of urban futures as Asian futures. So let me turn now to how urban futures are being made as Asian futures. As is well known to this audience, the 21st century will be an urban century, one where the human condition will also be an urban condition. But the 21st century will also be a southern century and perhaps even an Asian century. Much of the urban growth and urbanization of this century will take place in the cities of the global south, especially in the emerging and emergent economic powerhouses of India and China. The Asian century is increasingly instantiated through a series of urban experiments. And let me provide a brief glimpse of two well-known experiments, Dubai and Shenzhen, though after Gareth's introductory comments, um, I, I fear that you would think that our research in Dubai somehow involved Bedouin tents and, and belly dancing. Dubai is the 21st century metropolis of hyper-urbanism, a city of excess and extravagance. Indeed, the term Dubaiization has come to be synonymous with outlandish urbanisms of spectacle. From residential islands carved out in the sea, each serviced by a private helicopter, to some of the world's largest shopping malls, Dubai is, as Mike Davis puts it, a monstrous caricature. Or, as Davis continues to write about it, as an evil paradise. Mike Davis writes, in the cases of Dubai and China, all the arduous intermediate stages of commercial evolution have been telescoped or short-circuited to embrace the perfected synthesis of shopping, entertainment, and architectural spectacle on the most pharaonic scale. Now, I would submit to you that Mike Davis is perhaps wrong, that Dubai is not a monstrous caricature of development. It is simply development. It is at sites like Dubai that the telescoping of time that is characteristic of all development becomes visible, that the bold rearranging of space that is the task of all development stretches to the horizon. The key icon of this urban experiment is today the Burj Khalifa, which opened last year as the world's tallest building. Situated at the heart of the Dubai downtown mega development, the Burj has become a symbol of the hyper-urbanism that is Dubai. It's estimated that in just the first week after the tower opened, about 10,000 people paid a hefty fee each to visit the observation deck located on the 124th floor of the building. One of them, an expat, interviewed by the New York Times, declared the following, that the Burj Khalifa is the pride of Dubai. It shows how wealth is moving from the west to the east. It was a straightforward statement that was the popular expression of what David Harvey and other theorists of global neoliberalism have been charting as a reconfiguration of economic hegemony. 
Now, on the other side of Asia is another ambitious experiment, Shenzhen, China, China's first special economic zone and a symbol of its roaring economy. It is to Shenzhen that Deng Xiaoping was to return shortly after the Tiananmen Square protests to launch a carefully scripted southern tour to showcase the prosperities of market socialism. Shenzhen lies at the heart of the Pearl River Delta, which undoubtedly is the world's largest urban agglomeration. The estimates vary, but most, most would say that the Pearl River Delta is home to about 120 million people. It is in Shenzhen that I first started thinking about cities at the speed of light. Widely celebrated in Shenzhen is the idea of Shenzhen speed, a phrase that the city's journalists, urban planners, and uh, civil society folks use quite regularly. It's a phrase that refers to the city's incredible pace of growth. This is a city that went from 25,000 people in 1980 to about 14 million people in 2010. But the phrase also suggests that no other place or time has experienced the transformations that have characterized this city. The philosopher Paul Virilio notes, no politics is possible at the scale of the speed of light. And of course, cities like Shenzhen raise for us the question of what sort of politics is possible at the scale of the speed of light. In Shenzhen today, the revolution is urban. Everywhere there is construction, everywhere the new becomes old, everywhere factories and paddy fields give way to condominiums and malls, everywhere fast-speed infrastructure inhabits the city. And in Shenzhen, such assertions of speed imply designating other places as those that belong to a slower temporality, those that are falling behind, it is thus that a new rail link connecting Hong Kong to Shenzhen and beyond is presented by Shenzhen planners as a high speeding of Hong Kong. So if a decade ago, Shenzhen was the provincial hinterland servicing Hong Kong with cheap labor factories and what were known as mistress villages, then today it is Hong Kong that is seen to be the island that risks isolation and backwardness. What I want to suggest is that urban experiments like Dubai or Shenzhen, these cities at the speed of light, are much more than locations. They also embody circulatory capacities. Dubai capital, for example, circulates and travels. It reshapes urban landscapes across a wide swath of territory from Cairo to Delhi, and so is the case with Shenzhen that that idea of a special economic zone travels far and wide. Now, it's important to know that with those travels come all sorts of interesting models, particularly those of free enterprise. Dubai um, itself is often built to be an oasis of free enterprise, for example, by Mike Davis, but Dubai capital, in fact, enters into strategic partnerships with a variety of nation states as the bi-capital circulates and travels. For example, in India, MRMGF, a joint venture between the bi-property conglomerate MR Properties and India's MGF developments, has not only built gated com communities replete with reference points, such as the Burj Khalifa building in Dubai, 
but it has also partnered with the Delhi Development Authority to build the Commonwealth Games Village. Imar MGF billboards lining the streets of Delhi put on display Imar's showcase project in Dubai, the Burj Khalifa. And as you see with billboards that claim that while the Burj Dubai may be the world's tallest tower, Imar's dreams for India are even higher. Also in India, in circulation is the Chinese model of special economic zones exemplified by Shenzhen. And of course, these zones, while circulating as models of free enterprise, are put into place by the state. As an example of these quite unusual global circulations, it's Dubai-based MR properties that in India is undertaking the building of Chinese-style special economic zones. And this is partly what I mean by the making of Asian futures. I'm interested then in how these urban experiments are modeled in circulation. Models are a shorthand for utopian aspirations and desires, be those that reference a specific urbanism or those that are condensed versions of national experiments. So the Vancouver model, the Bogota model, the Barcelona model. The Singapore model, for example, circulates as a sign of the Asian miracle as a story of unprecedented economic growth that is maintained and managed through the well-ordered city. I'm also interested in how these models in circulation are also, as Lisa Hoffman argues, a mode of governing the urban. Such forms of governance, she shows, takes place through the creation of, quote, civilized and quality citizens. Studying how the city of Dalian in China sought to replicate a clean and green Singapore, Hoffman shows how the effort to create model cities is also the effort to create model citizens. In this case, self-responsible citizens committed to the ideals of green consumption and environmental thinking. And it is thus that the megacity of Mumbai imagined as a dystopic collection of slums, disease, and poverty is being reimagined by global consultants, elite NGOs, and urban, urban planning agencies as the next Shanghai, as a cosmopolitan and slum-free utopia. The Shanghaiification of Mumbai, as perhaps many of you know, has been violent, involving the brutal marginalization of the city's poor, and setting into motion a series of demolitions and evictions, including the eviction of nearly 300,000 slum dwellers in just 2004-2005, a process that came to be known as the Indian Tsunami. I want to emphasize that such models in circulation are not just instances of statecraft. In the Indian case, at least, they're also the work of an urban civil society dominated by elite think tanks and middle class associations. It is thus that Bombay First, an organization of Mumbai's wealthy and powerful, endorsed the Vision Mumbai report produced by McKinsey and Company. It was this report that first put forward in formal terms the idea of Mumbai as the next Shanghai. And in fact, Bombay First, in much of its literature and its work, continues to reference Shanghai. One example, when we talk of a resurgent Asia, people think of great changes that have come about in Shanghai, 
which we can transform Mumbai in the next five years in such a manner that people will stop talking about Shanghai and Mumbai will become the talking point. This vision of a resurgent Asia references distinctive Asian features of urban life, particularly those that are seen to be entrepreneurial. Now, part of that entrepreneurialism is, of course, Mumbai itself being imagined as a center of global finance with the aspirations to overtake Shanghai, but there are other types of entrepreneurialisms that are also celebrated. So also by Bombay First, there is a celebration um, of Mumbai's taxi drivers, for example. Bombay First, writing in its literature, the taxi driver, you don't need GPS with him around. He knows every nook and cranny of the city. These are narratives of Asian creativity, resilience, and ultimately success. Features that seem to defy the plotted coordinates of Western capitalism. It is in this way that urban futures are made as Asian futures. Now I want to additionally suggest that such models in circulation implicate more than elite desires and aspirations. They're also mass dreams. Let me put it this way. If the so-called Indian world-class city references models of Asian urbanism, be it Dubai, Shanghai, or Singapore, then claims to such world-class urbanism are also claims of integration, public interest, and urban democracy. Rather than a retreat to gated enclaves and secessionary citizenship, the Indian world-class city as Asian future must be understood as a remaking of the urban commons, a reclaiming of the city. And such a reclaiming is happening not under the sign of the global Indian, but increasingly in the name of the middle-class consumer citizen. Now, of course, the concept of the middle class is slippery in the Indian context and in all contexts. Leela Fernandez and Patrick Heller note that such middle-class interests are at once distinct from those of the poor and the working classes, as well as from those of the property classes. Yet organized as neighborhood associations and reform movements, the urban middle class in India has taken up the cause of the world-class city as the good city. Such forms of governance and self-governance exemplify the theme of model cities as model citizens. To extend this further, in a brilliant analysis, Asher Gertner thus argues, I quote, that the making of world-class cities is not instantiated solely or even primarily through an economic calculus of cost-benefit or through a juridical redefinition of property. Rather, it also takes shape through the dissemination of a compelling vision of the future. He writes, what I will call here a world-class aesthetic and the cultivation of a popular desire for such a future, the making of world-class subjects. Working in the context of Delhi, Gertner shows how this world-class future is an aspiration even of the poorest classes, even of those who are fated to be banished by the world-class city. Models in circulation, then, are a vital part of the making of cities at the speed of light. There are also examples of what Jamie Peck and Nick Theodore more broadly have designated as fast policy, 
the rapid dissemination of discrete policy ideas across distant zones of experimentation. And I'm interested in how such policy mobilities reproduce the Asian city as a milieu of intervention. But I'm also interested in how this invention is inherently unstable, inevitably subject to intense contestation, and always incomplete. Dubai, for example, is a city of iconic architecture, but it is also a city, as Yasser al-Shastawi argues, of transitory spaces, those claimed by the migrant bodies that actually build and service the city. Or, during the most recent global financial crisis, migrants found themselves abandoned by the city and in turn had to abandon it. The crisis touched even well-off well expatriates and news reports of cars abandoned on Dubai streets and at the airport by migrant workers and well-off ex expats who could no longer afford them served as poignant images of the fragility of brand Dubai. And Dubai's key icon, the Burj Khalifa, which I've already mentioned a few times, is a reminder that the city-state committed to the urban revolution is nearly $100 billion in debt. The Burj Khalifa itself was completed only because the neighboring city-state of Abu Dhabi bailed the downtown Dubai project out. It was a $10 billion bailout that showed perhaps that petro-capital is more durable than property capital. And immediately following the bailout, the Burj Dubai was renamed Burj Khalifa as a reference to Sheikh Khalifa, the ruler of Abu Dhabi. Dubai, once imagined as the center of the world, was now firmly repositioned as an Arab city. Crisis in places like Dubai is often, re, is often interpreted as a rupture in established frames of success. I'm arguing that crisis must be understood as a constant supplement to the model in circulation. Chad Hind, also writing in the Welding Cities book, provides a provocative example of this from Dubai. His example is this, that in the early 2000s, the British American Tobacco Company offered a promotion to consumers of its cigarettes, mostly South Asian laborers in Dubai. A drawing was to be made, and the initial idea for a grand prize was to bring the family of the winner to Dubai for a one-week visit. Upon taking an initial survey, it was learned that no one wanted such a prize. And in the end, the British American Tobacco Company offered the winners a paid trip home. Despite having migrated to Dubai with dreams of city streets paved in gold, most of these migrant workers lived under conditions of poverty in quite dismal hostels, which they did not want exposed to their families back home. Or take the case of Shenzhen and the ways in which, once again, crisis is a supplement to Asian futures and to those futures in circulation. Shenzhen, as you all perhaps know, is the world's workshop. It is in Shenzhen's factories that the world's favorite commodities, our favorite commodities, from iPods to iPhones, are churned out. In fact, I would bet that almost every gadget that we use in our daily lives that are in this room 
have been assembled in Shenzhen and have been assembled in one factory in Shenzhen, Foxconn, which is the world's largest contract electronics supplier. That assembly line that fuels our urban cosmopolitan lifestyles is, of course, usually invisible to us, except at rare moments. One of these moments happened a couple of years ago when a Shenzhen migrant worker, completing the assembly of an iPhone, took a photograph of herself and left it on the iPhone. You see her here in pink and white striped uniform, smiling, making the peace sign. The phone was to make its way into the hands of a British consumer. We know him as Mark M49 UK. And he posted the image. She was only known as iPhone Girl. We don't know her name. We don't know what happened to her. She was presumably fired. But in the circuits of cyber circulation for a while, iPhone Girl made visible to us the place that is Shenzhen. How do we interpret iPhone Girl? Following Donna Haraway, let me suggest that the iPhone girl is a cyborg figure, a hybrid of woman and machine, the techno-social subject of capitalism at the speed of light. For Haraway, the cyborg is a critical figure, but she can also quickly become banal and mainstream and comforting. Haraway writes, the cyborg may be an alibi that makes the techno-scientific bourgeois figure comfortable, or she may be a critical figure. Is iPhone girl an alibi for the global assembly line, or she its disruption, its critical figure? That question returns me to a question I posed earlier, which is at the heart of today's talk, a question derived from Virilia. Is politics possible at the scale of the speed of light? And if so, what is that politics? In the last year or so, a new politics has been afoot in Shenzhen, that of migrant workers who've made the journey to cities like Shenzhen from the villages of the Chinese interior, either workers who are legal, documented, or those who are part of China's massive floating population. And in fact, the Chinese migrant worker is central to the enterprise that is the world's workshop central perhaps also to the global economy. In 2009, Time magazine named its usual person of the year. The person of the year, in fact, was Ben Bernanke for having bailed out Wall Street. But it also named a variety of runners-up to person of the year. And one of those four runners-up was the Chinese worker, specifically the Shenzhen migrant worker. Photographed in black and white, Shenzhen's workers appeared on the pages of Time magazine as heroes of the global economy, given credit for leading the world to economic recovery. But recently, these portraits of heroism and aspiration stand in sharp contrast to a series of suicides that have plagued Shenzhen factories, particularly Foxconn. The deaths with workers quite literally jumping to their death from the top floors of factories or from the top floors of dormitories, have been seen as a symbol of the dark side of Shenzhen speed. Migrant workers working 11-hour overnight shifts, seven nights a week, forging plastic and metal into electronic parts amid fumes and dust, living eight to a room in cramped dormitories. There are 500,000 workers who are housed in Foxconn's dormitories alone. 
The debts have also been seen as a symbol of a new generation of Chinese workers unwilling to make unending sacrifices for the Chinese economic miracle. And indeed, in a quite stunning turn, workers in factories across southern China have gone on strike. In the face of these strikes and in the face of the global scandal of suicides, factories from Honda to Foxconn have sharply raised the wages of workers in southern China, including in Shenzhen. Is this a radical transformation of the making of Asian futures? After all, ever since its founding as a special economic zone, Shenzhen has been the space of model workers. Until recently, articles in the Shenzhen Special Zone Daily thanked model workers for their, for their painful labor and sacrifices undertaken for their company and for the zone. Model workers are saluted, as in one article, for offering their youth silently to Shenzhen and for having created the Chinese miracle and for thereby having stepped into the new century. This millennial utopia is now haunted. The ghosts are of bodies that have quite literally been corroded by work, disposable bodies discarded by the global assembly line, as well as of workers who've jumped to their death from factory dormitories. So then the question before us is this. Is necropolitics the only politics possible at the speed of light? I borrow that phrase, necropolitics, from Achille Mbembe's poetic essay, where he describes necropolitics as the work of death, where becoming subject supposes upholding the work of death. You can tell by now that I'm interested in uncovering the politics of Asian experiments with world-class urbanization. In foregrounding the various dialectics at a standstill that haunt the making of cities at the speed of light, the radical instability that accompanies these models in circulation. And with this in mind, let me turn briefly to a case that I've been studying for a while now, that of Kolkata, India, and the broader case of the making of the Indian world-class city. To give you an example, yet another example of dialectics at a standstill. I've already argued that the experiment that is the Indian world-class city must be understood as a claim to the Asian century, but it must also be understood as a master dream. I borrow this term from Suketu Mehta, who has argued that just as cinema is a master dream of the audience, Mumbai is a master dream of the peoples of South Asia. I've also suggested that the making of the Indian world-class city has entailed a quite violent expansion of the frontier of urbanization, a smashing of the homes and livelihoods of the urban poor. Such practices include not only slum demolitions and evictions, but also a set of urban enclosures through special economic zones and peri-urbanization. In Kolkata, for example, a long-standing leftist regime has promoted the rapid urbanization of the city's periphery through the development of new towns. Underwritten by public-private partnerships, they are formed through the erasure of the land and livelihood claims of squatters and sharecroppers, and through the enclosures of wetlands, fisheries, and other commons. But the city, 
And the Indian world-class city, more broadly, has also come to be confronted, indeed encircled, by a blockade. In 2006-2007, two uprisings in West Bengal, and really in the Calcutta metropolitan region, one in Shingur and the other in Nondigram, captured the national and even international imagination and demonstrated the dialectics of standstill that haunts the making of Asian futures. Shingur, a site at the edge of Kolkata, was to house the Tata Corporation's flagship nanocar factory. The nanocar is, of course, the world's cheapest car and is a dream image of middle-class automobility in India. To make way for the factory, the left-front government had procured land from local peasants and sharecroppers, and it also provided massive subsidies, geo-bribes, to use David Harvey's term, to the Tata Corporation. But here, opposition parties mobilized the displaced. In 2008, the Tata Corporation, seeking respite from the protests and strikes, abandoned its nanocar factory at Shingur. At Nandigram, a village in the state of West Bengal, the left-front government sought to put into place a special economic zone modeled after those in China. In this case, village land was to be transformed into a chemical hub owned and operated by the Salim Group, an Indonesian conglomerate. Here, a peasant uprising refused entry to the armed functionaries of the state, and despite brutal state repression, the peasant movement held its ground, becoming an important cause for national anti-displacement movements. The Shingur and Nondigram barricade altered the landscape of electoral politics in the region, and this month, the left front is set to lose to an opposition party for the first time since 1977. The struggles at Shingur and Nondigram are at the very heart of this political con con contest. But the blockades at Shingur and Nondigram have also set into motion an unmaking of consent to the sign that is Asia. If the Chinese model of development served as an important reference point for India's urbanization strategies, then today this model is under scrutiny. In a seeming reversal of discourse, Indian politicians now argue that China is not the appropriate development model for India, which after all is the world's largest democracy. The blockade also calls into question key instruments of urban planning in India from eminent domain to zoning. Let me give you an example. So while we've seen these quite visible struggles in Shingur and Nondigram, there've also been a series of minor blockades all through Kolkata. And one of them is embodied by a poignant symbol, which you see in the middle of your screen here, quarter number 411. Occupied by Shambhu Prasad Singh, this factory quarter was the last holdout in a tract of factory lands that had been converted into the city's upscaled South City retail and residential complex, which you see rising in the background here. The workers had been evicted from their quarters with no prior notice and with meager compensation. Shambhu Prasad Singh had refused to make way. He was the blockade. His blockade triggered important scrutiny of the very nature of urban planning in Kolkata. 
Soon it became evident that the Saturday complex, which was being celebrated as an instance of the making of Kolkata as a world-class city, had been built in violation of environmental laws and to the enclosure of some of Kolkata's largest water bodies. Such forms of elite informality and elite illegality are commonplace in Indian cities today. And while urban poverty is criminalized, elite informality is often legitimized and even practiced by the state. Thus, the new towns at the peri-urban edge of Kolkata that I talked about earlier exist in direct violation of the state's own proclaimed policies of protecting agricultural land and wetlands. But rarely are they seen as informal or illegal. Shambhu Prasad Singh's blockade made visible the South City complex as the towers of violation, and at least for a moment disrupted the consent that has hitherto accompanied elite informality and illegality. These blockades in Kolkata can thus be interpreted as an image to forge alternative urban futures. But if so, like the Asian century itself, this too is an enterprise fraught with ambivalence and contradiction. Let me explain. The left front responded to the uprisings in Shingur and Nondigram with considerable violence. The repression of the state came to be severely critiqued by leftist intellectuals hitherto sympathetic to the agenda of the left front. But in whose name is such a critique launched by the left against the left? Activists argued that industrialization cannot be more important than agriculture. In doing so, they presented a moral challenge to the enclosures of primitive accumulation and they sought to give voice to dispossessed villagers who were being lost to history. But such a narrative privileged the figure of the peasant owner over those of the urban squatter, informal vendor, and day laborer, the figures whose claims to space remain criminalized by the Indian judiciary and by the making of world-class cities. I would submit to you that there are no such public hearings, no such struggles, waged by leftist intellectuals on behalf of the urban poor. It could be argued then that urban squatters and slum dwellers are the new awkward class, not fully proletarianized or dispossessed, tenuously tethered to property and petty bourgeois production. They cannot be defended as the heroic subaltern. They cannot be the subject of history. They remain at the awkward margins of the blockade. It can also be argued then that the struggles at Shingur and Nondigram do not challenge the making of the world-class city. Framed through a Marxist nostalgia for dispossessed peasants, they trivialize the brutality of urban development. In previous work, I've argued that such pastoral motifs are commonplace in what can be understood as Bengali liberalism. Pastoral radicalism can only advance one critique of urbanization, and that is the loss of an agrarian world. It cannot challenge the dream image that is the world-class city. It has no political vocabulary to do so. There are other limits as well to the struggles in and around Kolkata. The blockade represented those displaced at Shingur as dispossessed villagers. 
Yet powerful counter-narratives soon circulated. In withdrawing from the nanocar factory at Shingur, Ratan Tata, CEO of the Tata Corporation, wrote an open letter to the youth of West Bengal. And in it, he posed a stark choice. He said that the youth could, in fact, take up a future with a prosperous state, with the rule of law, modern infrastructure, and industrial growth, with jobs. Or they could see a state consumed by a destructive political environment of confrontation, agitation, violence, and lawlessness. Amidst a deindustrialized and informalized economy, where industrial jobs are rare, Ratan Tata's open letter dangled that most rare of dreams, factory employment. And in 2008, a new round of protests took place at Shingo, this time by those who had relinquished land for the nanocar factory in the hope of jobs. I don't have a photograph of that protest, but the banners this time read, Welcome back, Ratan Tata. We want industry. We want jobs. We do not want confrontation. This too was a blockade, this time in defense of industrialization. Amidst persistent structural violence, it is impossible to assert that the subaltern has consented to the wage slavery of the city at the scale of the speed of light. Yet it is equally impossible to assert that industrialization and urbanization are elite interests imposed on the working classes and on the poor. In this sense, Shenzhen is the ultimate mass dream, fulfilling the promise of industrial employment for the masses. And I would argue that blockades in places like Kolkata consolidate rather than disrupt the idea of Asian futures. They evoke the sense that surely elsewhere in Asia, the fires of protest are not burning. Surely elsewhere in Asia, in Shenzhen, in Singapore, in Dubai, urban futures are possible. Transformed from geography into history, Asia in this way becomes utopia. After pulling out of Shingur, the Tata Corporation relocated its nanocar factory to Sanand, a town at the outskirts of the Ahmedabad metropolitan region in Gujarat. The Gujarat government had provided ample geo-bribes for the relocation, including 1,200 acres of prime land freed up for the Tata factory. The chief minister of Gujarat that you see here in an image that I'm sorry is out of focus, Narendra Modi, was eager, as always, to put on a show that Gujarat is open for business. But as many of you know, Modi is also the architect of the 2002 riots waged against Muslims, carefully planned and implemented by the instruments of the state, the Gujarat pogroms killed and maimed hundreds. Today, it is Modi who is the keeper of the dream image of Swadeshi prosperity, the nanocar. And it is thus that the nanocar stands at the confluence of Hindu fundamentalism and neoliberal nationalism. This fascist utopia is also a mass dream. It is also the making of Asian futures. In closing, let me suggest that the study of such urban experiments makes possible, I hope, a study of the worlding of Asia. That it makes possible the inscription of the term Asia with new critical meanings.
first, to read Asian urbanism requires a tracing of models and circulation of the material and discursive practices of interreferencing through which cities are made and inhabited. In this sense, the name Asia becomes, as Gautry Spivak has argued, a placeholder in the iteration of a citation. Such a conceptualization moves us away from locationist references of Asia to understandings of emergence, reticulation, and circulation. And it also makes evident the citationary structures of urban capitalism, those that unfold through the iteration of key Asian themes and icons, including that of the Asian city. Second, it is worth thinking of Asia as an unstable signifier, as an invented latitude. And for those of you who spent any time in South and Southeast Asia, you've seen these ads of Malaysia, truly Asia, complete with the cosmopolitan, multicultural shopping experience embodied always to the body of the woman. I borrowed this idea of Asia as an invented latitude from Abdul Malik Simon's critical intervention in global urban studies, seeking to locate cities from Dakar to Jakarta across an invented latitude. Simone calls for attention to shared colonial histories, development strategies, trade circuits, regional integration, common challenges, investment flows, and geopolitical articulation. And finally, iterations of Asia generate a surplus that cannot be easily contained within familiar frames of urban success and globality. That is that crisis, that is that radical instability, that is that haunting. So here, to make that point one more time, is a closing story from Brazil, not Asia. For those of us who work on cities, Brazil remains a context of great interest, a site where a national cross-class movement has organized around the right to the city. Multiple activisms insist on asserting what one of my Brazilian colleagues, invoking Lefebvre's idea of experimental utopias, has defined as time spaces of transgression. So not surprisingly, during my first trip to Brazil a few years ago, I went with a certain longing. Having worked in India for a long time, in that brutal frontier of urbanization, I was eager to see Brazil as the counterworld to Asia, to find there a politics that was possible at the scale of the speed of light, a politics of resistance, and one that could also disrupt the world of Asia. But walking along an unevenly paved narrow street in a hillside favela in Sao Paulo, I came face to face with Asia, with this. Our hosts, who study the politics of housing, pointed out that this was Singapore, a line of newly constructed apartment houses that ringed the original favela. A slum redevelopment program in Sao Paulo whose success continues to be hotly debated in Brazil, Singapore makes explicit reference to Singapore's history of public housing. This is a model in circulation. It is Asia in circulation, 
but it also disrupts the model of the Asian world-class city. It disrupts the Singapore model. For after all, it is rare for Singapore's public housing pedigree to be referenced. Usually Singapore, despite its constant experimentation with technologies of welfare, circulates as a model of market logic and free enterprise, or as a model of ordered urbanism and technocratic management. But here, in a displaced space of inter-Asia, at the margins of the Brazilian city, Singapore was finally resurrected as a model of public housing. This is a counter-worlding of sorts. It is also a sign of the travels of Asia. In this case, Singapore is a colloquial citation. It is an indigenization of the referent that is Asia. Displaced into the space of political struggle in Brazil, Singapore is the pluralization of Asia. Following Derrida, Singapore, at the edges of the favela in Sao Paulo, renders Asia undecidable. Derrida writes, the undecidable remains caught, lodged at least as a ghost, but an essential ghost, in every decision, in every event of decision. Its ghostliness deconstructs from within any assurance of presence. It is my hope that such attention to the making of Asian futures and to the ever-present supplements of crisis and standstill will make it possible for us to reinterpret global urbanism and its established geographies of theory. This is a task that I know many of you see as urgent and vital, and I share in that project with you. Thank you. best to, uh, to handle this, but uh, maybe we could uh, firstly thank you, Anania, for, for a wonderful and inspiring uh, talk, and uh, invite to the floor uh, for any questions or comments uh, to Anania uh, relating to the lecture today. Sorry, coming around. I'm not sure if it's going to get you in at the speed of light or <laughs> somewhat slower. I'll stop making that reference. century in which we're going to have the pressures of climate change on rural areas, uh, which will increase the migration to cities that you've already described. What's your guess about the prospects for cities to absorb 
the kind of climate refugees that will be produced during this century? So obviously this is not necessarily a topic on which I'm an expert, but I think history tells us that cities have quite incredible capacity to absorb all sorts of refugees and migrants, um, that if we think of cities as both exclusionary and yet open spaces, then cities in fact are home to all sorts of social groups. I think the Chinese case is particularly interesting because there are, of course, in China quite severe limits on who can be part of a city, who can have urban citizenship. Now, despite that, China's also home to a massive floating population that in quite extraordinary and everyday ways defy those bans on migration. A second piece to this is that I also think we're witnessing, in the context of climate change, quite interesting experiments, both urban and rural, with the idea of green cities. And again, in the Chinese case, there's a great deal of ambition to leapfrog stages of development and to, in fact, think about um, the Asian century as an eco-century. One of the wonderful chapters in the Worlding Cities book is by an anthropologist called Shannon May, who studies the eco-villages that are being built in China that are meant to have zero carbon footprint. And they're seen to be an alternative to Chinese urbanization. You'll have to read Shannon's work because it speaks for itself. But I think this, too, is part of the models in circulation, uh, which is perhaps a corollary to the question that you asked. Thanks, Aranya, for the talk. Uh, just um, because most of all the cities that you were talking about was Mumbai, Kolkata. I was just wondering about the not so large cities of hundreds that's in India. What would be your urban narrative, which is an urban, situ an urban situation as well? What would be, have you studied that? Or what, 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 what are your thoughts on that? Well, as you know, there's a lot of work waiting to be done on what in India quite technocratically are called tier two cities. Um, you can argue that the making of world-class cities is an enterprise restricted to India's megacities, to, to cities precisely like Kolkata, Bangalore, Delhi, Mumbai, and so forth. But I would doubt that that is the case. And partly, I think... If one thinks about the citationary structure of global capitalism, which is what I'm ultimately interested in, then I would argue that those citationary practices show up in a variety of sites. They're not restricted only to the mega platforms of urbanization. I think the other piece of this is to think about the sort of urban space that a special economic zone is. So that one of the models in circulation in the Asian century is this weird thing called a special economic zone, which Shenzhen as an exemplar, well, is it a city? It's a zone. In the case of India, these are often zones created through the confiscation of agricultural land, and therefore they're not restricted to the large metropolitan regions or even to the peripheries of those. So I don't mean to suggest that the making of these Asian futures is somehow restricted only to the best-known cities or urban sites. In that sense, we can think about a Lefebvrean 
urban revolution, whether urban revolution is not restricted to a human settlement called the city. It is about the transformation of space itself into a commodity. Uh, thanks, Ananya, for a challenging talk. And I, I want to ask, the, uh, I'm going to ask a question that's, uh, well, it's actually a point of clarification. So I want to make sure that I understand your main, um, main argument. So, okay, so as I, uh, so tell me if I've got it right. Um, if, 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 I, if I understand you, the point, and I, I love the fact that you end with this, this case, because I think it clarifies, well, Let's see if it clarifies something. <laughs> this is what I get from it. Um, that that uh, when you say the, the way in which, which Asia is cited, um, so Asian citation is profoundly ambiguous, you're thinking against a set of uh, normative positions, which, um, so I'm thinking of the way Jill Hart cites Asia in her account of South Africa interreferences Asia to clarify what, you know, an account of South Africa, um, for instance. Um, Asia in that sort of normative vision is, stands in for a kind of capitalism in which, undergirded by land reform, as you well know, undergirded by land reform or public housing in the Castel story, uh, and therefore uh, it's a, a model of a sort of a social democratic capitalism, uh, a, stable, a stable form. And it seems to me that your interreferencing of Asia is of, uh, or, or your, your, your framing is of, uh, of through, this, through this Benjaminian greeting of the ruin and so on, is of, uh, and of the dead bodies at, at the workplace, is of uh, primitive accumulation. As of ongoing primitive accumulation. Well, okay, that's the old stodgy way of putting it. <laughs> but um, something like that, right? That Asian futures, uh, Asian, Asian citation today can no longer bear the burden of that uh, social democratic presumption, and that Asian, Asian citation today actually bears the burden of all these, these incredible costs. So, in that sense, of primitive accumulation. Is that something, is there something there? I love it. We should have just had Sharad give the talk, right? <laughs> or we could, have done, we could have done an act together, right? No, I think that's very useful. I think that, um, so this perhaps takes me back to the book rather than to the talk. And um, of, the, of the various folks here, Asher Gertner has a chapter in the book, so he should perhaps speak up as well. But um, the book on the one hand, is an attempt to rethink established geographies of urban theory. And, you know, I didn't reiterate those arguments here because many of you are quite familiar with those arguments, that it's time to move beyond what Jenny Robinson has designated as this quite debilitating dualism between global cities like London that are seen as command and control nodes of the world economy and mega cities that are seen as big but powerless warehouses of a surplus humanity, in Mike Davis's apocalyptic language. So I think many of us have been engaged in the task of trying to forge forms of urban research and urban theory that take us 
well beyond that dualism to create new geographies of theory. And so part of the straightforward venture in this book is to take seriously the urbanism that is happening in the global south. Now, the project that got this book started was something that the Social Science Research Council in, in, in the US called, called Inter-Asia. And they were interested in rethinking how Asia itself is imagined and theorized. And I think for us, the project then was an interesting conjoining of an attempt to, to remake urban theory, but then also an effort to remake the ways in which Asia has been imagined. And there are at least three dominant ways that we wanted to challenge. One, rather obviously, is what Deepesh Chakraborty in Provincializing Europe talked about as a European historicist thought that has consigned the countries of the global south to what he calls the waiting room of history. Um, the way that in which Asia figures in important genres of thought, including in Marxism. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it was to challenge the claims coming out, the very hegemonic claims coming out of India and China of the Asian century, where Asia becomes the metonym for global capital. And for a global capital that is seen to have features different than Western capitalism, more entrepreneurial, more creative, so forth. And the third, then, is the most subtle piece of it that we were perhaps taking on, that yes, Asia, particularly East Asia, could not be simply read in the ways in which some very influential social scientists had read East Asia as some sort of form of social democratic capitalism, um, as land reforms, as these great industrial experiments, that all of that may have happened, but there were fragments of this East Asian miracle that were now circulating, that had been put into motion, often by city-states like Singapore, and that had to be accounted for. And to account for this, for us, meant looking quite seriously at the urban, that quite a bit of the circulation, this experimentation, was happening at the scale of the urban, though of course I'm sure this work could be done at other analytic sites. A rather down-to-earth question after um, some of the more highfalutin stuff. You made reference to the wage increases that have come about at Foxconn and Honda and other firms as a result of the, um, yeah. um, the disputes there. Have you any feedback yet on how that's affecting um, the lifestyles, the conditions of the people working in those factories? We don't know as yet, and I think it's a very important question, because will these factories then simply move to another part of quote unquote Asia where wages are much lower? And that's why I asked the question of what sort of politics is possible in a place like Shenzhen. Last year, it seemed that a, a rather traditional working class politics of labor strikes was possible. But we also know that those labor strikes were possible and visible only because the Chinese state had allowed them to be. Uh, reversing its long-standing policy of banning unionization in special economic zones and more broadly in southern China. So whether or not these workers who indeed have gone on strike will be able to retain these jobs remains to be seen. And this again is this radical instability that I'm talking about. I'm very interested in how these outcomes are not at all guaranteed. Another one. 
Thank you. Obviously, there are many causes of the fragility and the vulnerability of the uh, uh, city by, cities by, by speed of light. Uh, one, of them could, could, one, one of them could also be this, perhaps, that these models are somewhat alien to the, uh, uh, to the local culture. And, um, um, and would an effort to indigenize these models, would it help to reduce the vulnerability of this, of this project? Thank you. So, and many of you may, t may take issue with this, my, my position on this matter is that it's hard to talk about local versus foreign models. That partly by thinking about interreferencing, I'm suggesting that no such distinction is possible. That we're looking at models in circulation, and as we look at these models in circulation, it's very hard to say that the Singapore model is alien to India, and therefore it does not work, or that special economic zones are alien to India, and therefore it does not work. Because really what is circulating is a fragment, it is already indigenized, it has been already co-opted and appropriated, but it also circulates. So, for example, one way of, to, of, of having framed this talk would have been to have talked about a global neoliberalism, neoliberalism as a universal script, and that it lands in places like India and it runs into trouble. But I would suggest that neoliberalism in the Indian context, for example, is homegrown. And that homegrown conjuncture is a particular combination of global capital, diasporic investment, state practice, middle-class associational life, even possibly following Asher's work, the aspirations of the urban poor. So those are the sorts of conjunctures that I'm interested in where it's much more difficult to talk about what is local and what is not. And in fact, precisely the narrative of Asianness automatically indigenizes all of this. Now, the ways in which there are also certain seductions built into these travels. So it's not surprising that Indian urban planners so often look to these three Asian models, Dubai, Singapore, and Shanghai, as inspiration because the lament is that India is this democracy, messy, people in the way of development. Look at these other places. They don't have to deal with it. But that is not so much a foreign model somehow landing in India. This is very much already an indigenous vocabulary uh, that, in fact, articulates a certain vision of the future. I think I use the Brazil case as an example, perhaps, again, not of something foreign that lands, of a slum redevelopment project that chooses this very interesting reference to this distant zone of experimentation, and in doing so, seeks to legitimize the idea of public housing, an idea that is unpopular in this particular city. <laughs> Thank you. We, we may not answer this question, but um, follow would be: Is there enough indigenous thought on this uh, on this issue? I mean, does India have enough thinkers to uh, think on this issue of urbanization? Thank you. 
Well, you know, I think there's all sorts of thinking about the urban that's happening in India. And partly, um, you know, what I wanted to highlight was that this thinking is not only happening in elite groups, but happening across the socioeconomic spectrum. And it's not just the work of the state, but I think we've seen a real a resurgence, perhaps, of an urban civil society very committed to thinking about the urban. But I think what is a question is, what is this thinking on the urban? And what is the urban future that is being imagined for India? And I think there is, one can argue, a quite comfortable consensus in policy-making circles, be it civil society as an actor in making policy, or the work of the state in making policy, that the future of India's cities is something called a world-class future. And that's perhaps what uh, many of us have hoped to challenge in this particular book and in our work. Yes, uh, thank you. Actually, a question uh, with India as well. Um, I know that the uh, slow rate of urbanization has kind of been historically documented in India, and it's partly due to some issues of classification, uh, which I know um, have sometimes been controversial issues and political issues. Um, obviously, as the urban century continues for India, there's going to be substantial urban growth. But in your opinion, do you think there's going to be less of a reluctance to not classify rural areas as urban as the century continues and as, ur and as India just becomes more urbanized generally? Well, I don't know if there's a single answer to that question. What I will tell you is that um, UC Berkeley recently, in this last March, organized a conference in Delhi called the 21st Century Indian City. And we very much wanted to engage policymakers as well. And um, the issue, one of the issues that kept coming up, in fact, it was an issue I think that Asher raised early on in that conference, was precisely how urbanization and urban growth are measured in India and the politics that is at stake in those jurisdictional struggles. I think at a broader level, um, it's interesting to note the state of urban statistics and whether or not the data that exists on megacities is valid. I remember a piece by David Satterwhite about the Millennium Development Goals where he talked about how all urban statistics were nonsense statistics, that they simply did not capture the vast proportion of people living under conditions of informality and poverty in cities in the global south, for example. But in the case of India, um, I think this whole notion then of whether or not India has grown urbanized slowly remains a matter of great debate. And it depends, as you pointed out, very much on how one defines municipal and metropolitan jurisdictions. Um, perhaps picking up a bit on your response to the last question and thinking about the, um, the conditions under which populations get accounted for and are, are sort of made legible but on, on, their, on their own terms. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a recent article by Abdul Malik Simone, who you mentioned in the talk, who talks about the conditions that are necessary for the securing of the majority, by which he means um, mm -hmm. What it, the, the conditions that are necessary for the majority of the urban poor who share certain economic, cultural commonalities, but who aren't necessarily 
they don't have a shared necessarily political association to gain recognition or voice or this type of thing. And I'm wondering, it seems like a number of the examples discussed today seem to imply perhaps that these citationary practices often draw from locations elsewhere in order to sort of perhaps mobilize an imaginary of as an elsewhere in which that future was possible or may be possible. But I'm wondering if there are examples from the book or elsewhere in which it's something, maybe it's the wrong word, that's more local or in which it's more grounded in the conditions of the present as a time space. But you're also looking for an example with some hope in it, right? You're looking for progressive politics. Aren't I always? Yes. Well, I think that what is at stake more broadly is, again, how do we present a challenge to this very dominant, seductive narrative of a world-class city? And what sort of politics makes possible that challenge? And I think what we're seeing in the work of Abdul Malik Simone, but also in the work of really thoughtful activists, is the idea of an urban majority. So when we were in India, uh, we heard from groups like Sewa, activist groups, and they've clearly mobilized around this idea of an urban majority to say, well, the world-class city serves, at the end of the day, a small proportion of those who live in that world-class city. How, what would it mean for us to reconceptualize cities as spaces of the urban majority? Which, in many of the cities that I've talked about, would be migrant workers, the floating population, squatters, slum dwellers. But the, and what I'm interested then is at what moments that imagination of an urban majority can also become a citation. And I'll give you one example. There were many of us who do work on cities who had been invited to a conference in Shenzhen, China, about a year and a half ago. And we were asked as part of the usual rituals of academic conferences to meet with some local journalists who wanted to interview us. And you know, these were local Shenzhen reporters. They, they, here they were uh, you know, sitting down with a bunch of academics. And their first question was, what is the global city? Um, it's a good thing Neil Brenner was there. We passed that one on to him. But um, they were really interested. So I realized the ways in which this was an indigenized concept, right? which is why I'm resisting the local foreign thing. This made perfect sense to them. It was their common sense everyday vocabulary. And the second question was, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai had just opened. And despite that story of the debt crisis in Dubai, the second question was, you've seen Shenzhen, have you not? You've taken a tour. You are expert. You tell us if we should build, in the next few years, a tower taller than the Burj Khalifa. <laughs> Would that make us a global city? Right? So we tried to tell the whole story about debt. And their point was, well, we're not going to go into debt. Should we build a taller tower? And so we thought, all right, so this is going to be this quite predictable process of disrupting this established citationary structure. But then they did something interesting. One of, um, one of the colleagues, Brenda Yeo, in fact, asked them, instead of asking us what you think, what we think of Shenzhen, why don't you tell us what you see as the most important symbol of Shenzhen? And 
We had expected that they would m mention Windows of the World, which is this rather kitschy Disney-esque theme park in Shenzhen, or they would talk about fast-speed infrastructure, or they would talk about Foxconn, and look, Foxconn produces the world's commodities. The answer was surprising. It was the China, it was the migrant worker. And the female migrant worker, that for them was the citation through which Shenzhen had to be understood. But it turned out that that Time Magazine article had just come out, right? So Shenzhen had already been cited through the body, the heroic body and trope of the female migrant worker, which then, so I can't even say that that circulated and became indigenized. It was in fact very much part of the citationary structure that in fact was somewhat radical and disruptive. Not at all the progressive politics you were looking for. <laughs> The title of your lecture, The Speed of Light, seems to be a defining aspect of this kind of Asian development, if I didn't misunderstand you. And then you had uh, this sentence from Paul Virilio, The Impossibility of Speed of Light Politics. I want to know what meanings are hidden within the speed of light. Is it just hyper-urbanization hyper and speed of construction, or are there other aspects of space-time? Mm -hmm. So I think that if we were to take this idea that Asian urbanization is a presentation and self-presentation of the speed of light, so Shenzhen planners talking about Shenzhen speed, which is when I really started thinking about this idea of speed and immediately reminded me of Virilia's work, but also the ways in which an influential urban theorist like Mike Davis talks about Asian cities and particularly his narrative of the Bai, which he presents as almost being outside the bounds of reason, as almost outside even history, or at least a history that historical materialism cannot grasp. And it's a very particular framing, because on the one hand, in Davis's work, you have a place like Dubai, which he also you know, lumps with China, and says there's a telescoping and a short-circuiting of history, but he also then has a text like Planet of Slums where he talks about how the surplus humanity in slums cannot be the subject of history. They cannot undertake collective politics. So it's that configuration that we partly want to quite seriously question um, in our work. But that also means then thinking, as you point out, about um, what the speed of light entails. And what I love about Virilia's work, of course, is that it was written during the first Gulf War. It's a commentary on the war. Um, that book is called Desert Screen and it's about televisuality, but it is about how war itself becomes a televisual exercise. So there's some very important politics there about how we understand empire and sort of the long histories of imperialism in trying to understand the speed of light. Some ways then, Virilia meeting Walter Benjamin as we think about standstill ruins as an interruption, as a dialectical image. Uh, many thanks, uh, Ananya, for, uh, uh, as, uh, as Sharad, I think, put it, uh, a challenging and uh, I think altogether fantastic and fabulous uh, talk to us this evening. 
struck by the numerous kind of registers to speed um, in, in the lecture itself, obviously from light at one extreme and standstill and suicide uh, and dead stop, uh, essentially uh, at the other, as somebody who personally, uh, politically, uh, and, uh, and in other ways, uh, rather likes the notion of slowness. Um, I hope that slowness has a future, at least somewhere uh, in uh, Asian cities, uh, wherever they may be uh, looking forward. Thank you very much, Ananya.